So let me, let me open us in prayer. This is, this is a heavy topic, and, and I think we need to just state that up front, but it is, and I genuinely believe that in my mind it is the most pressing issue the church refuses to talk about. And it's, it's one of, um, and because of that, it's important to kind of state it bluntly to some degrees about how much we need to talk about it. So in light of that, let, let, let us pray. Father, Lord, it is difficult in our age to really sit with your vision of power that you, you reveal to us in your word. It's, it's hard to know what, what it looks like at times. It's hard to see how we have embraced in one way or another um, worldly power. And it's hard to even sometimes recognize how we are tempted in all those ways. And I just pray that you will reveal to us the ways that we are um, inclined towards these things. Help us, I pray, and guide us in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Apostle Paul begins his letter to the church of Galatia by telling them this. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. We live in an age Scripture calls evil. We live in an age that Jesus was sent to deliver us from. But of course, salvation is not learning to live out of the world and to abandon it, but to learn to live the way of God from within it. As Jesus prayed to his Father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I'm, I'm sure you don't need me to tell you that we live in this present evil age. You could probably feel it. Looking around the world, it seems that it is tearing itself apart at the seams in various ways. But let me suggest this shouldn't be our focus as Christians. It would easily, it'd be very easy to kind of get so taken by that that we get lost in it. But this is not our calling. Our calling is to attend to the reality of God of living in the way of God in this age and to trust by faith that he will deliver. But let me state my claim up front. Again, I, I want to state these things starkly and in part because it, it, it might come as a bit of a shock. But I, I believe that, that evangelicals in America, and I use that term in the broadest sense, so again, that covers a wide swath of, of, of people claiming Christ. We have sought in many ways to gain the world and have lost our soul. We have sought evil power to further the gospel, foolishly believing that we wouldn't be warped by it. But we have been warped, and we live in a day where the church is bearing a fruit of evil at times. We live in a day where you can find worldly power run amok even in the walls of the church or other Christian institutions. We are witnesses today to an absolute epidemic in ministry. There's a generation right at retirement who over and over and over again has fallen from ministry right before the retiring. And what they show is that there is this long history of worldly power that has permeated their ministry. The problem is not that it's hard to find, actually, sad as that is. It's easy to find. It's everywhere. I would, I actually thought about listing just a handful. I, I wouldn't even want to do it because the lists go on too long. 
This is, it feels like everywhere, but here's our temptation. Our temptation is to look at leaders and say, man, this is a huge problem for them. When in reality, this is not a leadership problem. It's not a problem for those people out there. It's not a problem for big churches. It's not simply a problem for those who are maybe in the political realm or something like that. This is a human problem. Every one of us are tempted, no matter what position we're in, no matter what we do in life, to wield power that is antithetical to the cross. In everything we do, we're tempted by this. Because everything you do, whether you know it or not, assumes a view of power. You give yourself to the things you give yourself to because you think you can construct a powerful life. That's what we're doing. You could put it in other terms and think that your entire life is simply your claim about what the beauty is of this world. Your life is your, your claim on beauty. This is what it means to live a beautiful life. That's what we're all doing in one way or another. And unfortunately, because in many ways we have failed to really talk about power, many Christians in the church have come to believe that I can just kind of believe in generically Christian things and give myself to worldly power, and it'll all work out well in the end. But that's simply not how the kingdom of God works. You know, I went to Bible college right out of high school, and I realize this is hard to believe now, but back then I was an athlete. And it, it's to the degree, if I go back to Chicago, I'll run into people, they'll be like, are you coaching anywhere? I'm like, what are you coaching? What are you talking about? All oh, right, high school. Okay, wow, that goes way back. You know. I barely showed up to high school, but I did to play sports, and that was it. That's all I cared about. But I learned how to win, and we did. I mean, we were consistently top five in state. I was a volleyball player of all things, which doesn't make sense either, but we were really good, so that, that was good. But I learned there's a way to win. A certain amount of hard work, a certain amount of fortitude, hit the gym enough, hit the reps enough, learn the playbook enough, you know, you can win. And so when I went to Bible college, unsurprisingly, I did the same thing. I, like many of my seminary students, went to study the Bible to win. This is why a lot of people end up in the pastorate, by the way. To some degree, right? there's always a mixed reality to it, just as there was a mixed reality when I was in college. I had a genuine calling into ministry, but it was mixed with a view of power that I can wield this to win, to dominate, to be great. I had quite a lot of grandiosity in me. And then when I went to seminary, that only fueled it further. But as I look back, when I started seminary, there was two things prevalent in my life. There were grandiosity and there was fear. And I was deeply afraid. I was afraid of not being important. I was afraid of not having value, not being successful. But I didn't just want to succeed, I wanted to be great. And so I gave myself as hard as I could, just as I'd learned in sports. The problem is, I, after I finished my first master's in philosophy, I then did a master's in the New Testament. The problem with the New Testament is that Jesus has all sorts of things to say in it. And what I found to be true about Jesus is he's not interested in my grandiosity, it turns out. And I kept on being confronted with these passages. The first will be last. The last will be first. Those who try to save their lives will lose them. Those who, who lose them for my sake will find them. Without me, you can do nothing. 
See, the problem I think I had growing up in the church, I heard those passages. I had highlighted some of my high school Bible. But like many of us that grew up in the church, we have a little folder in our hearts that we call the crazy things Jesus says folder. And so you read those passages, you're like, hey, Jesus, that's totally right. I'll put that down there. I don't know what that means. Yeah, it's crazy. We don't actually believe that's how the world works. The last are last, and the first are first. If you lose your life, you lose your life. If you embrace weakness, you are weak. That's not where power is. And so I never really had to grapple with them. But when you do an entire degree sitting with these things, day in and day out, I I couldn't get away from them. And that led me to one of my favorite prayers to pray. I've prayed at many different times in my Christian life, and it was probably, at least at that point in my life, the most honest prayer I'd ever prayed. And it was, Lord, this is not what I signed up for. This is not what I thought this was about. I'm not interested in this, it turns out. (laughs) But what encouraged me is that's exactly what the disciples were like. Jesus' entire time with the disciples were them realizing, "Ah, we didn't sign up for this. This is, we thought this was going to be something else. There's a great moment in John 6 where Jesus says, you're going to have to eat my my flesh and drink my blood, and doesn't explain it at all. And everyone's like, this just got really weird, you know, and, and we're told, and the only, time I, the only time I can think of in the New Testament, the Bible, where we're told that, that crowds of Jesus' disciples abandoned him there. These aren't just crowds, these are disciples who abandoned him. So Jesus turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave too? And Peter's response is, Lord, where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. And as I was reading, I remember thinking, Peter doesn't, Peter's not any more comfortable with what Jesus said. He doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. He's not like, I, I know what you mean, wink, wink, we're going to have, you know, Lord's Supper later. That's great. He has no idea what he's talking about. But he says, but I know that your words have eternal life. And so even though that's not what I signed up for, here I am. And in many ways, that, that, that was the shape of my own life. And as I wrestled through the question of power, which I felt more and more confronted by in Scripture, one of the things that became clear is that this shows up everywhere in the New Testament. But perhaps the most clear place is in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. In 1st Corinthians 1, 17 and 18, so right up front in, in Corinthians, Paul says this. He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Notice that for Paul, the cross is power. He goes on to call the cross wisdom. That the cross is the reality that should shape everything else that we give ourselves to. Our parenting, our friendships, our job, our worship, our devotion, all of it is shaped by the cross. But notice, and this is a little more disconcerting, that Paul says there's a way that a preacher can preach that empties the cross of its power. And there's no reason to think we should stop with preaching. There's a way to read scripture. There's a way to pray. There's a way to sing to the Lord that empties the cross of its power. There's a temptation we have to embrace Christ and Christian ideas, but not the way of Christ. And that is perhaps 
the, mo- the greatest temptation the church faces today. And, I th- and in fact, this is, I think, what, is, what has gone wrong in many ways in the church, is the church has too often embraced the temptation. Because when you have good ends in mind, it gets easy to justify the means. And if you look at, often, particularly in leadership, failures that occur, you can walk step by step with, well, I probably shouldn't have done that, but I, it wasn't a bad kind of thing, but I, okay, I did it. And little justification by little justification, where eventually they end up, and they're off the reservation. And there's subtle embraces of worldliness and worldly power that ends up warping their souls. To use language from Paul in Galatians 6, whatever one sows, that you will also reap. This is one of the longest lasting themes of scripture. This is the heart of biblical wisdom. What, and I use this with my children. I'll talk to my children about the choices they make in life. Your choices are like seeds. You throw a bunch of apple seeds on the ground, don't be shocked that pumpkins don't grow. Right? What you sow, you will reap. If you're sowing lots of bad choices, what do you think is going to happen in your life? What kind of life is that for you? But notice now Paul ratchets it up a little bit. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. See, the problem is that when we tend to read this, we hear flesh as bad things. So we read that as don't sin, basically. This is not what Paul's saying. Of course he's assuming that. But you can worship in the flesh. You can read your Bible in the flesh. You can try to love your neighbor in the flesh. See, just because these are kind of Christian activities doesn't somehow make them unable to be warped by the flesh. The flesh is quite good at what it does. And it can take anything. And this is why this is so subtle. And this is why, particularly in places where Christians are able to get worldly power, why they're so often seduced by it. Because we can very quickly capitulate because we have good ends in mind, to whatever means we think necessary to make those ends come about. This gets to the very heart of the problem with the Pharisees who Jesus called whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. They really did a good job of looking clean, but their insides were desperately sick. This is why Paul, in his vision of love at 1 Corinthians 13, says it's possible to do something profound, like give away all your money to the poor, and says it's a meaningless act if it is not for love. Because there's no simple acts we can give ourselves to that are just completely sanctified in and of themselves. The Christian life isn't magic, it turns out. <laughs> that I, I can't just say the right things at the right times. That I, I just can't do the right things at the right time. That I've got to attend to what is actually going on in my soul. See, I think more than anything else, we will be tempted to wield our flesh for the sake of the kingdom. We will be tempted to sow in the flesh and naively think we will be able to reap in the spirit. But it simply does not, it just simply does not go that way. As we saw in my Harry Potter talk, Scripture loves giving us two options. But it only gives us two. There's not a third. You have to choose one way or the other. The way of wisdom or the way of folly. The way of the world. The way of the kingdom. The way of light or the darkness. The way from above versus the way from below. The way of Harry. The way of Voldemort. You know, you, 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 these two ways. 
In James 3 is where we discover this idea that there's a way from above, which is the way of Jesus, and there's a way from below. And listen to how James categorizes these ways. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his words in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now notice that this way from below is kind of curious. He says there's kind of these three different spheres that we see this come about. What he calls earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now the church throughout the ages has come to categorize these as the world, the flesh, and the devil. These are three spheres that evil makes its way into this world. Do not be tempted, although we all are tempted, to get rid of one of them. And I imagine even in a room just this size, there's, there's which one we want to get rid of is probably up for grabs. We, I, know, I know next to no one who wants to hold all three and balance them well. The way I grew up in the church, it was the real problem's the flesh that leads to the world, and uh, demonic, yeah, they're probably out there doing something, who knows. I met other Christians with the opposite. My flesh is kind of relevant, demonic around every corner, that's the problem. There's a growing amount of Christians today that want to get rid of the flesh entirely and the demonic entirely and say this is solely worldly issues. There's worldly systems at play. There's always a temptation to reduce these down. James will not allow for it. But what's clear is that these three different spheres all all share the same view of power. And notice, because I don't know about you, but I hear world, flesh, okay, this is pretty bad. Then devil, it's like, whoa, okay, this this got really serious really quick. So what are we talking about here, murder and these things? He gives two, two characteristics of the way from below, jealousy and selfish ambition. And I don't know about you, but that cuts a little too close to home. And James says, wherever you find jealousy and selfish ambition, he says, you will find every vile practice. I mean, I wouldn't have named these two. (laughs) I would have come up with something different. It's interesting when Scripture says something to us, we're like, wow, that's actually, that's surprising. Really, jealousy and selfish ambition? Like, that's that's the root of all this evil? James seems to think so. And yet, how easy is it for jealousy and selfish ambition to be masked as righteousness, as holiness? How easy is it to fuel a life lived by jealousy and selfish ambition? Jealousy in particular goes oftentimes totally unnoticed in the church. Sometimes we're jealous of other Christians, other churches. We're jealous of how other people have been able to navigate their life. We're jealous of how other people look, what they've been able to do. Jealousy is an epidemic. And yet, according to James, jealousy is at the root of evil as it penetrates into the church. In fact, and again, I'm not, it's hard to wrap our minds around this, that jealousy is at the root of the demonic 
according to James here. And that demonic power and worldly power and fleshly power are infiltrated with selfish ambition and jealousy. And yet, I'm a seminary professor, and I will tell you, many people go into ministry for selfish ambition and jealousy. Many churches function with selfish ambition and jealousy. And by and large, we never name the truth of it. I'm not sure why that is. I imagine it's different in different places. We might not see it sometimes. It, it, it might just go unnoticed. But you know what I'm hearing a little too much? I'm hearing a little too much that, yeah, but they're such a good preacher. And so their other sins go unnoticed. I'm worried that, that we begin to feel like we're no longer allowed to name evil in the church. Because again, it feels like the world is pressuring us around. It's like we don't want to name the truth. We have to name the truth. I'm worried that we just simply think it's not a big deal. There's bigger fish to fry. Oh, yeah, sure, jealousy. But James seems to take this very seriously. You can think about, or, or listen to how he kind of thinks about, how Paul here at least thinks about, what is the Christian life about? This is in Ephesians 6, 12, and 13. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. This begins to sound a lot like Harry Potter. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Notice that Paul has us dress up in armor not to win, but to stand. What are we standing against? We're not standing against people, it turns out. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But our wrestling is against the powers and the principalities of this age. And that cuts across all three of these categories, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We can't reduce the powers and principalities down to one or the other. But whatever these things are, they are caught up in how Paul understands the nature of the world. That there's systems of evil in our world today that must be unmasked and named. And every institution is almost like an antenna that can pick up the signal of these powers and principalities. The powers and principalities, it's like a rhythm. Ever hear someone, or like hear someone marching or clapping, and you can't help but follow their rhythm? Like, you know, you just like, stop it. Like, you, you just kind of naturally kind of, It's like evil has this rhythm, and we just start embodying it. And the church is now being absorbed into this evil sphere. Scripture has all sorts of names for these. Sometimes Paul will refer to them as the thrones. A throne is an interesting image because it's not personal. It's something, an entity that confers power to a person, but it's self that cannot be reduced to the personal. It's a system of evil that penetrates reality. And unfortunately, the only people I can find talking about these sorts of things, they're talking about them precisely because they've rejected the world and the, or the flesh and the devil. There are so few people, I actually can't think of other examples, where people will talk about all three of these things as a united front of evil. This is a problem. 
we tend to reduce these down in all sorts of ways rather than recognizing in this present evil age against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, we are called to stand firm and to bear witness to the way of Jesus against the way of evil. And unfortunately, when the pressures of this world weigh in on us, there's a tendency, particularly an American tendency, to turn towards worldly power to fight back. And there's a deep belief that we can play their game without being warped by it. And that's utterly naive. It's a failure to take seriously how Scripture thinks of the powers of this age. And as the church has tried to defeat evil on its own terms, it has inevitably been warped by it. We have an entirely different way to defeat evil. We follow the one who walked through it and who has embraced eternal life. We follow the one who walked the way of the cross, who defeated evil. As we used to say that in the death of Jesus, death itself died. That is precisely the way we embrace. But it's a countercultural way. It doesn't make sense to us in our flesh. It does mean that we're called to be powerful, though. Every Christian is called to be powerful. But what's interesting is that the only way to be powerful in the kingdom of God is to embrace weakness for the sake of love. When you think about what power is, two questions immediately come up that may help clarify this. First, we might ask, well, where does power come from? And then the second question is, well, what is power for? Because that'll determine quite a lot. Most of us assume power comes from within. So I've just got to learn how to wield my strengths at the world. But as the risen Lord Jesus tells the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. See, the goal is still power. You know, the goal is never to be weak. That's never the goal. The goal is to be powerful in your weakness. But, but that is what is so kind of counterculture. That, that's, what, that's what kind of makes our minds just go numb a bit. Because like, well, what does that mean? How do we embrace that way in this world? But the prevailing notion of power I come across today, both in the church and outside of the church, is that that cannot be true. The prevailing notion that I come across is that we must at all costs get rid of our weaknesses and actualize our strengths. That's what it means to do well. That's what it means to succeed. That what it, that's what it means to win. And by and large, the church has just accepted that vision, even though it's entirely counter to the cross of Christ. And if we embrace it, we will empty the cross of its power, as Paul warns. We have to take seriously that whatever we're called to, whatever sort of ministries in the church we embrace, whatever role in the Spirit, whatever reality our marriages and our parenting and our, our brothering and sistering of one another, whatever that looks like, all of it is called to be conditioned by the cross and the way of Jesus. But too often, we turn to other sorts of ways. Too often we believe that what Christ is calling us to is to reject the cross, is to create kind of enclaves where we can find power so that we can assert ourselves on this world. And yet, that is simply not what we discover in the Gospels and in Paul. I think one of the most profound examples of this is in Mark 12 when Jesus points out the widow 
who gave out of her poverty. I think we tend not to read what Jesus says here. He doesn't say that she kind of put in more as a metaphor because she gave out of her poverty. Jesus claims that that woman who put her little mite in actually gave more money than the Pharisees who dumped in bags of money. And there's a couple ways we need to receive that. Is Jesus honestly speaking of reality here? Maybe he's just making a point. That's one way to read this. He's exaggerating to make a point. I actually don't think that's faithful to the biblical text. Jesus is claiming that widow's might is more money in the kingdom of God than the bags of money the Pharisees put in precisely because of the overflow of who she was as a person to Christ and her faith. That that money will literally do more kingdomly work than the bags of money of the Pharisees. Now that is a countercultural vision. The belief that there's a reality, and this is exactly what Jesus was talking about. When Jesus talks about the kingdom, you can swap that out for the word reality. Jesus came to say, you want to know what reality is like? Let me tell you what it's like. If you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. He's telling you how the world actually works. What you will think in your flesh is, yeah, but that's not true. That doesn't work. Because we're used to looking at the world with our eyes. And this is why Jesus says precisely, it is by faith alone that you will come to walk in this way. Jesus is calling us to deeply believe that these things are true. That the first really will be last, and the last really will be first. Regardless of what our eyes seem to tell us. So this leads Paul, when he receives this this declaration from the risen Lord, and he learns that the power of God is made perfect in weakness, it leads Paul to say this, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. The technical word there is tabernacle upon me, but the image is clear. Power does not come from within but from without. As I embrace my weaknesses, I'm embracing a posture of receiving from God, recognizing my ability to be powerful in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with me receiving the power that comes outside of myself so that the power of God might rest upon me. This is not power from within, it's power from without. True power, true Christian power comes from outside of ourselves. This is why we shouldn't be afraid of our weaknesses and we shouldn't see them as failures. This is why we don't have to eradicate them. By the way, the vision the world has today that we need to construct persons, nothing is more devastating to a human being than that. The view that you can create a life is utterly debilitating. Look at college campuses if you want to see the fruit of that belief. There's a reason mental health is so bad, and that's one of many reasons, but it's certainly one of the major ones. The belief that the construction of a life is on my shoulders is debilitating. The Christian belief is if you want to discover who you are, come to know your life hidden with Christ in God, as Paul says in Colossians 3. You want to know who you are, you have to turn to Christ, because Christ defines you. 
and that Christ offers you a life that you don't generate, but you receive by grace. So if power comes from without, what is power for? And in short, it's simple. Christian power is for love. Whereas worldly power, we might think of as power in the flesh, is power and strength for the sake of control and domination, Christian power is power and weakness for the sake of love. But of course, we can still be for love and try to give ourselves to the way of the world to achieve it. We can upend the way of Christ by defining love in our image rather than his. You know, I find it funny that one of the things that people do when they hear that God is love, they think, oh, I know what love is, therefore God is this, when it actually works the other way around. When you hear that God is love, your first instinct should be, well, then I must not know what love is until I look to who God is and what he has done. We don't project our views onto God and then reread God's action into them. We look at God's actions to define what love looks like, and then we look at our lives in light of that love, and we come to ask the question, am I loving or not? Do I know people who love or not? If God is love, God's life determines what love is, not our presuppositions about what love should look like. But what we see Jesus doing continually, as he did with me, is Jesus takes us where we are, and by his grace alone, he accepts you in the midst of reality. The problem, from our point of view, is that Jesus doesn't accept you in fantasy, but that's where you want him to accept you. What we want Jesus to do is accept what we offer to him. And so we love to fantasize to God. We love to pray and make up things. We love to say true things in prayer that are kind of true out there. Whether they're true of me is the second question. We love to make bargains with God. I remember when I was a younger Christian, I used to, I'd wake up and I was praying, but I was definitely sleeping. And I'd wake up and I'd be like, oh, yeah. and of course I feel guilty because I was supposed to be praying, right? So what do I do? God, I'm sorry, I'll do better. Well, that's a lie. And let's be honest about that. Neither of those things are true. I won't probably do better. And let's be honest, I'm going to fall asleep in five minutes anyways. Um, why didn't I turn to God and say, God, look at this. Look at this. Without you, I could do nothing. You know what Jesus tells us about prayer? He says, you don't know how to pray. So I sent my spirit to pray in you. That is both, both a very low view of our abilities <laughs> and a very gracious thing to do. You don't know how to pray as you ought. <laughs> so the spirit groans with groaning too deep for words. That's the other interesting thing is that the way the spirit prays for you is when the spirit descends to the depth of your soul, the spirit only groans. Because words can't describe what is in you. That's interesting. But it's not only what's in you, but the spirit, when the spirit descends into a soul, you know what the spirit experiences? The spirit knows what you were created for. And so in Romans 8, when Paul's talking about this, he compares that groaning to the creation's groaning. Because the creation knows what it was created for, so it groans, longing for the day when God will heal. The spirit is in you because you do not know how to pray as you ought. The Lord's calling you into reality because the Lord only works in reality. So if you're angry, pray as one who's angry. If you're faithless, pray as one who's faithless. If you're not interested in this stuff, pray as the one who's not interested in this stuff. If this is not what you signed up for, tell the Lord, Lord, this is not what I signed up for. If you want to know how to pray honestly, just read the Psalms. The psalmists are always praying in honesty. The psalm knows what's in their hearts. One of the funniest things I have when I tell my students to pray the prayer, to pray the psalms, inevitably, or I tell anyone to, inevitably, if you've never prayed the psalms, every Christian comes to the same conclusion at one point. Is, I can't pray this. 
You mean God's word? Like, what, what do you mean you can't pray this? Well, it says, like, Lord, dash their children against the rocks. That's like, yeah, you've been on the five before. You've prayed that prayer. You may have used different words, but that prayer's in your heart. You need to be honest about that, and you need to see it for what it is. Pretending you're not angry. Imagine what's going on when you pray. The Spirit's groaning in honesty before the Lord, and you come to the Lord, and you're like, oh, yeah, things are going well. You know. What are you talking about? You're a mess. Be a mess with me. The Lord can't form you in fantasy because your fantasy doesn't exist. God does not want you to pray with your avatar. He wants you to pray in truth because that's the only way to pray. And what God continually will do for you is he will lead you into ways to show you this is not what you signed up for. You need to see that. This is how you still would like the world rather than me. We need to name that. But abide in me here. One of my favorite examples is the transfiguration. The transfiguration, the disciples, the three disciples, Peter, um, James, and John, who, who come up the mountain with the Lord, they don't know what's going on. I think that's pretty clear from the text. It's got to be good, though. Jesus is glowing. What does that mean? Who knows? But Jesus is glowing, so it can't be bad. Moses and Elijah are there. Again, why are they there? Who knows? But it can't be bad. Again, Moses and Elijah are good. Luke tells us, Luke gives us an insight the other Gospels don't. Jesus says that Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his upcoming exodus. That's the word exodus is used. So Moses journeyed through the sea, and Jesus is journeying through the sea of death to take us to the promised land on the other side of death, resurrection life. The disciples are amazed. Peter just starts shouting things like, ah, we should build tents here, and it's good you brought us. This is wise of you. you know, and, and, and we're told that Peter doesn't know what he's talking about. And then Jesus does something interesting. They are having what is literally a mountaintop experience. And how does he build on it? He leads, he leads them to see that they're totally unable to defeat, the death, to defeat darkness and to defeat evil, that they're utterly incompetent to do anything about it. So they go down the mountain, and there's a boy with a demon, and they can do nothing. And before evil, they have no power whatsoever. Then as they're walking on the road, Jesus does what Jesus always loves to do. Hey, what are you guys talking about? Who's the greatest? Sorry, Jesus. You get this, get this great sense of what was going on. They're literally debating about which one of them is the greatest. Do you know where they're heading? They're headed to the cross. And the debate is which one of us is the greatest. And then James and John, in a, in a passage that is borders on the comic, if it wasn't so tragic, is James and John turn to Jesus and say, you know, we've been following you for a while, Jesus. Should we call down fire from heaven to consume the Samaritans? This is where you would like a little more detail. Like, and Jesus cocked his head and said, what? But we get nothing. He just rebukes them. James and John, they've heard the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies. Yes, Jesus, we should totally love our enemies. But when are we going to kill the Samaritans? Should we do that now? Is that going to start now? You know, what's interesting about the transfiguration is there is a prophet who calls down fire from heaven, and it's Elijah. And on the mountain they realized who they really wish Jesus was. They're not interested in the Jesus going to the cross. They're interested in another Elijah. That's what they really want Jesus to be. And the whole way Jesus is giving them a mirror is you're not interested in me. You don't want me. You want something else. 
You want power and you want it on your terms. But I'm taking you somewhere and you better prepare yourself because we're going to go to death. We're going down a road that you have to come to embrace. The second place I think this gets really clear is in the Gospel of Mark. In fact, the whole Gospel of Mark is meant to articulate this journey we're on. The first eight chapters, Jesus is trying just to get them to know that he is king, he is Messiah. That's the goal. And so at the very middle of Mark, he begins asking them, well, what do people say about me? Like, what's the gossip on the street about me? Oh, well, you know, some say you're um, Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist back from the dead. And then Jesus asks the penetrating question of Mark, who do you say that I am? And before you get to think about it, Peter chimes in quite quickly, as Peter tends to. And he has the right answer. He wins the theology test. You're right. Simon, son of Jonah, you are right. And from that moment on, for the rest of the gospel, for the first time in the gospel of Mark, Jesus starts talking about his suffering and his death. Notice what he's done. He gets them to a point where they realize who he is. Oh, he's king. Yes, Now take that word king, empty it of everything you think a king should do and be, and let me replace that with I'm going to go suffer and die, and I'm going to bring you along. Peter's response is to rebuke Jesus in front of the rest of the disciples. And so so Jesus does what, of course, Jesus would do. He calls Peter Satan and says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. Notice he connects the things of man with the demonic here. The flesh and the devil get intertwined here. That Peter wants to accept that Jesus is the Christ, but he doesn't want to accept the road of the Christ. And again, we will always be tempted to embrace the beliefs of Jesus, the name of Jesus perhaps, but maybe not the way of Jesus. To to quote Dallas Willard, who had a great one-liner here when he says, we're not called to simply do Jesus' things. We're called to do them in Jesus' ways. And that is exactly right. And lastly, we come to one of the most tragic passages of the New Testament, Matthew 7. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, this is one of those passages that plagued me as a young Bible student. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Now, there's a couple things that we need to point out here. First, if you find yourself before the judgment seat of Christ, giving him your ministry resume is a bad idea. You've misunderstood something about the relationship. And that's, that, that needs to be said, because clearly that is confusing the whole thing. Look at us. Who are we? We've done mighty works. But notice that Jesus never calls that into question. I mean, this is impressive, right? We have casting out demons, mighty works. I imagine they have impressive ministries. I never knew you. Jesus isn't saying, like, now who are you again? Because I've got a list here. I don't know. You don't seem to be on it. He knows their name. He knows who they are. To say I never knew you when you're God means to say you never gave yourself to be known by me. You never gave me the truth of who you are. You embraced power from me and you wielded it. But I don't know you because you never gave yourself to me. And again, 
This is what confronts us today. We can sow powerful ministries in the flesh. We can sow Bible reading in the flesh. We can care for others in the flesh. And all of this could be for naught if we're not embracing the truth of our Lord and the truth of ourselves in his presence. See, in each of these stories, we see people trying to use Jesus and his kingdom. In each story, we see the the fundamental problem as scripture presents itself to us. That we're looking for power not in weakness, but in strength. In Hebrews 11, that wonderful passage that depicts the entire kind of history of redemption and is the hall of faith. There we are told that it was by their weakness that they were made strong. So this is not even new in the people of God. The people of God have never been called to any other way than power and weakness for the sake of love. And yet, the people of God have always been tempted towards something else. God gave him his presence in the temple. What'd they do with it? They tried to use it as a mechanism to manipulate him, to control him. God descends with fire on Mount Sinai to be with his people, and they create an idol to try to control him. Continually, throughout all of Scripture, the people of God have been tempted to embrace other ways of power instead of trusting in power that comes from without and power that is truly for love. And and this is precisely the vision that the world has no answer for. Christians who embody this way, you know what's interesting? When When I did this book on power, we went and interviewed Christians who we thought have embodied the way of power for decades. Most of them were 80s and above, some 70s. And what's interesting is no one would doubt that these were powerful human beings. One person had retired from the pastorate to the middle of nowhere in Montana, and at least every two weeks, people were flying out to sit with him. That's power. That's a powerful human being. There's a B&B there that exists. They're unbelievers. And the first thing they'll ask you is, Oh, so you see him? Oh, yeah, okay. Because you know. they know the only reason you're flying there is to see him and to sit with him. We met with someone about an hour and a half north, a little more north, slightly east of Paris. And again, weekly, from around the world, people just want to sit and hear and learn. That is power. It's not power that you find in youth, however, though. It's the kind of power that only matures over decades upon decades upon decades of faithfulness. And yet it is unquestionable, unquestionably powerful. We were interviewing J.I. Packer for the book at a coffee shop, and I kept on getting these weird glances by elderly people. And I wasn't sure quite what to do with it. Um, It was his favorite coffee shop, and it was was mostly elderly people. And... um, And I remember thinking, like, we're hanging on every word this man says. We're recording every word he says. We're rapidly taking notes. And it became clear that these people had never seen people in their young 30s doing this (laughs) with someone who was in their mid-80s. And you got the sense that they wondered, what is it? Why are they interested in him? See, the Christian church has a vision of aging that should be profound because we believe in wisdom. 
And yet we're often tempted by the zeal of youth. What you sow, you will reap. That is the continual vision we see in Scripture. If you sow in the Spirit, you will reap in the Spirit. But if you sow in the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. And after Paul gives us that image in Galatians 6, he says, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Notice that Paul assumes that if you sow in the Spirit, you'll need to hear, don't grow weary. Because if you sow in the flesh, that's not the message you need. The flesh gives what it gives rather quickly. It doesn't give what it promises, but it gives quickly. But if you sow in the Spirit, you'll need to hear, don't grow weary in doing good. You will reap, so sow in the Spirit. See, I worry that we simply don't ask the question, what truly is Christian power? I worry that we are often seduced by worldly power because we never bother articulating a vision of what Christian power entails. I worry that we turn to things like technique, that if only we can wield the right technology, that if only I could get savvy enough, if only we can employ this enough, if only we had more money, if only we had more, and we, we never stop and say, well, wait a second. What does it mean to embrace life with God here? I worry that when we experience weaknesses, and I include myself in this, Paul's list of weaknesses is disconcerting to me. In 2 Corinthians 10, he tells us to embrace, and to not just embrace, but boast in hardships, persecutions, insults, calamities. I'm not content with insults, if I'm honest. My instinct is not to be content in calamity. And yet, Paul wants us to see these things. We can name them as evils in this world, but that does not mean they're not also gifts from God. And that's the paradox that we face in the Christian life. When Paul is given the thorn of the flesh, he asked the Lord three times to have it taken away. We don't know what it is other than it was both a messenger of Satan and a gift from God. It's a weird gift. It's not the gift he wanted, but that's what it was. And God's response to Paul every time was, no, I will not take it away. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And we're told explicitly, the Lord gives it to Paul to keep him from becoming conceited. Humility matters more, Paul. And so I give you this. When we experience calamities, when we experience insults, we can name them as evil, we could pray the Lord take them away, but we also must be weary, and I say be welcome, I suppose, to hearing, no, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness, and it won't feel like the way to power, but that is precisely the way of power we are given in Scripture. That the way to embrace power will always take us through Gethsemane. The experience of it will always be, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a weird path of power, but that is the biblical path of because what matters more is we come to embrace that without you I can do nothing. And it's only as I abide in you, Lord Jesus, that your power is made known. This vision is the vision you see throughout the entire New Testament. And it's the vision that should permeate everything. No matter what we do, no matter what position we find ourselves in, as a Christian, you are in a position of power in the kingdom. 
Remember that Paul reverts the power systems so that what we in the world think of as less matter more in the kingdom of God. So just because you don't have worldly power says nothing about the kind of power you have in the kingdom. We don't judge power in worldly ways in the kingdom. So we have to learn how to discern according to the cross. We have to learn how to discern how am I, how am I sowing a life? Am I sowing a life in the flesh or am I sowing a life in the spirit? And that sowing is the thing that takes place in little choices we make along the way in every sort of little choice along the way. The choices we make with our money, the choices we make with our time, the choices we make with our relationships. We're all sowing a life according to a way of power. And we have to trust that what you sow, you will reap. If you sow in the spirit, you will reap in the spirit. But if you sow in the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. Let me stop there. I have some other things I want to talk about. Let me stop there. Let me pray. And then I just want to open it up for discussion. I would love to kind of I realize there's some practical questions we might have. There's some other questions, but I, I, I want to take this where you want to go with it. So let me pray for us, and then I, I just want to open it up and have a conversation. Father, Lord, in so many ways, these things are difficult. Lord, I, I think again of the words of Peter. Lord, you have the words of eternal life. Lord, we don't always like those words, and sometimes those words are utterly baffling to us. But Lord, you have embodied the way of the cross. It's your way. And as we're told in Philippians 2, that we are to have this attitude among ourselves, your attitude, to embrace this way for the sake of love. Lord, there are so many ways we are tempted. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of what you have called us to. Lead us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.